Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Over the last few months, we have been taking a look at lessons from the life of David. We are now at its conclusion. This will be our last message on David's life as we come to the end of it. And we will learn from some of the last words and events that we read about here in 1 Chronicles chapter eight, uh, 28 and 29. Now, when we come to the end of David's life, we think about all that has transpired in this man's life. He lived to be about 70. When we first are introduced to David, he's a young man. He's just a shepherd boy in the fields, uh, shepherd fields of Bethlehem grazing or taking care of the sheep. We learn that during that time, God is using that experience to train him up to be caring for others, to be uh, sensitive to the needs of others. We learn later that he's anointed, even as a young man, as king over Israel by Samuel. There'll be three anointings on David before he fully comes on board as Israel's king. He's anointed early in his life. He's anointed in Hebron, where, he's, where he reigns for some seven years. And then he's anointed in Jerusalem, where he reigns for another 33. In total, he reigns 40 years over Israel. We learned about the development of his courage as he stood up before Goliath. We learned about his perseverance, even as for some 13 years, he's on the run from Saul, who's attempting to kill him. We learn of his grace as he spares Saul's life on two occasions. We learn of his commitment to his friends, such as Jonathan. And even after the death of Jonathan and Saul and his other brothers, we find that David will fulfill his promises to Saul as well as to Saul's son, Jonathan, to make sure that one of Saul's descendants is taken care of. We learn of his ability to lead, even as 600 men gather around him when he is running from Saul, 30-something, 37 of them become his mighty men of valor who protect David time and time again. We learn of his organizational abilities, even as he wields the people of Israel into a viable nation. We learn of his warriorship as he leads his troops into battle, expands the kingdom, to its height, which Solomon will inherit. 
We learn of David's ability to accumulate goods such as gold and silver and bronze and to make arrangements and covenants and agreements and treaties with other nations so that when he is getting ready to build the temple of the Lord, which God would not permit David to build, he has everything in place for Solomon, his son, to pick up that, those materials so that Solomon could be the builder of the temple. David was an incredible servant of God. And if there's one description of David that is said over and over about him is that he was a man after God's own heart. He was an individual who was a great musician. He was an incredible poet. He was a prophet. He was a king. And he served as one who was sensitive to the things of God and valued the things of God. So that even when he was found out as a sinner... He was one who was ready to confess his sin, to repent of his sin, and to be restored and to receive and experience the grace of God as well. For he was a man after God's own heart. When we move into the Brit Hadashah, into the New Covenant Scriptures, we find that a man by the name of Paul, Saul, his name changed to Paul, when he goes on his first journey, He is sent out by his home congregation, which was located in Antioch in Syria. We're told that the congregation, and particularly the leaders, the elders of the congregation, spent some time in prayer. And God, in response to their prayer, spoke to the elders of this congregation. And they told the elders to separate Paul and Barnabas for a particular work that he had for them. They were to be sent out to leave the shores of Israel and Syria and to head to the island of Cyprus. When they sailed to Cyprus, they visited from one community to another where they began to share the message of the good news of Messiah that he has come. They led many to faith and established congregations on this island. When they circled around the island, they went first of all south and then west and then north. When they came north, one who, was, who came along with them, John Mark, he is the, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, although it's Peter's Gospel, but he's the one that's writing for Peter. Nevertheless, at that point, John Mark leaves the company of Barnabas and Paul and returns back to Antioch. Barnabas and Paul continue north. They head into what is today modern Turkey or in the ancient world, Asia Minor. When they come to one of the cities in Asia Minor, and you can turn with me, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 20, Chronicles 28, in chapter 13, we read that once they set sail from the island of Cyprus and came north, It says in verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Pergia in Pamphylia. That's when John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia, not Antioch of Syria. Now they're in Asia Minor. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law of the Torah and the Nevi'in, the prophets, The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, 
If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, and he begins to speak to the Jewish people gathered in the synagogue for worship. What an incredible invitation. If you have any words of encouragement, any good things to share with us, would you come and share it? Well, they had something great to share with them. The Messiah had come. He had laid down his life. He had fulfilled all that the prophets said the Messiah was to fulfill. And he has provided us with life everlasting. Now, what's interesting is the way that Paul tells that story is by placing it within the context of the history of the Jewish people. For after all, the coming of Messiah is part of the history of the Jewish people. And so he tells the story of Israel. This is very much like what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. Now remember, Paul was there when Stephen was martyred. It says that he held the coats of those that were there ready to stone Stephen so that they could throw with their arms free of any encumbrances. What that tells us is, what this tells us is that Paul was listening to what Stephen had to say. It had made an impact on him so that now when Paul had joined in with the message, now that Messiah had made himself known to Paul, and as Paul now shares this message at this congregation, he shares it in the very same way he had heard Stephen share it. And when we get down to verse 33, as, or verse 32, as Paul talks about how Messiah Yeshua fulfilled what the prophets said Messiah would do. It says in verse 32, and we bring you the good news. They wanted some words of encouragement, so here it is. They bring them these words of good news that what God promised to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Yeshua, as also it is written in Psalm 2. That's what I read this morning at the beginning of our service. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 34, And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he had spoken in this way. And he quotes from Psalm 16, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. From Psalm 110. The Psalms that David is writing is predicting that the Messiah would not see death. Now, what Paul's argument is, is that David cannot be speaking about himself. Because David did die. And David's tomb, Paul tells us, is with us to this day. We have his bones. He did see corruption. But Yeshua did not, for he was raised on the third day of Passover. But now notice what he goes on to say in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Now, what I want to focus on is this little phrase that Paul uses. After he had served the purpose of God in his generation. We're at the end of David's life. And the thing that Paul mentions, which I think is rather uh, important and stark, 
is that he comes to the end of his life after he had served the purpose of God in his generation. You know, every one of us comes into this world with a God-given purpose. We don't all find that purpose because in order to find that purpose, you must first find him. You cannot find God's given purpose until you found the giver of that purpose. You need to know God. Otherwise, what you are pursuing might be your very own purpose or somebody else's purpose, but it's not God's purpose because God needs to tell you what his purpose is for your life. There is one purpose for all of us, and that is that we would find life in him. That's why God created the world. He made us in his image so that we would enjoy him forever, that we would love him. That's why we recite in the Shema that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the purpose of every human being, that we would come into this world knowing the true God of the universe, that we would follow him, that we would rejoice in him, that we would celebrate him, that we would enjoy him, and that we would love him forever. Until we get there, we can't discover the particular purpose that God has for us in our generation. And you know, when I think about purposes, all of us have desires of what we would like to be or what we might like to do. But ultimately, we will find our fulfillment when we rediscover what it is God wants us to do in our generation. And it's something that unfolds over time. What I love about Paul's statement is that David, who was a man after God's own heart, he served God. And after his life was at its end, he went to be with his fathers, of course. But what we're learning or what we're hearing from Paul is that he came to a conclusion at the point at which he fulfilled the service for which God had called him and brought him into this world. What a wonderful epitaph to have on one's tombstone, right? That he died in such and such a year, she died such and such a year, and she or he served God in his or her generation, did what she or he was supposed to do. Now, I want us to take a look at David at the end of his life as we reflect on him fulfilling his divine purpose. Of course, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 really fits within a larger context that begins back in chapter 23. So let me just summarize these chapters. In chapter 23, in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, we find that, first of all, he appoints or he anoints Solomon, his son, to be king over Israel. That's the first thing he does in verse 1. When he was old and full of days, he made Solomon, his son, king over Israel. And then what does he do? The first thing he does is he organizes the Levites. And he organizes them under various families so that they could serve in the temple. The Levites were to serve the priests. The distinction between the Levites and the priests were the Levites were descendants of Aaron. The Levites were descendants of Levi. Now, Aaron was a descendant of Levi, but a, a, a priest was a descendant of the priestly, high priestly family of Aaron. He may not be a high priest because he had to be directly in line of Aaron and with respect to Aaron's oldest sons. But Aaron had four sons. 
So there are other sons and descendants of Aaron, not all of whom will serve as high priests, and those who do not serve as high priests serve as priests. And the other Levites, who are not descendants of Aaron, they were uh, assigned the responsibility of aiding the priests. Everybody with me? So Levites were a broader segment of the priestly class. Priests were a more narrower segment with prescribed responsibilities. So what David does is he organizes all of this. He organizes all of the priests, uh, excuse me, all of the Levites, so as to serve the direct descendants of Aaron, who are the priests. So in chapter 24, David organizes the priests into its 24 courses or groups. So when we read in the Brit HaDashah and we read about Zechariah, when it was his course to serve in the temple, he goes and he lights the altar of incense, and it's there that an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth will have a son and they are to call him John. And that is the birth of John, the forerunner of the Messiah. But Luke points out that it was during the course of, I forget the name of the particular priest uh, that, jo- that Zechariah is serving. These courses or groupings were 24 And this enabled all the priests at different times of the year to have opportunity to serve so that not one priestly family has all the responsibility. So David, first of all, in chapter 23, organizes the Levites. In chapter 24, he organizes the priests. In chapter 25, he organizes the prophets and the musicians who would be playing in the temple and would be participating or leading in the worship Uh, in the temple by the Israelites. In chapter 26, he organizes the gatekeepers, those outside, and the magistrates, those outside the temple compound. And when you get to chapter 27, he organizes the military. So now that David has organized all of these aspects of the Jewish people's life, he now turns his attention to these three groups of people to give them his final words, final instructions, final encouragement as he comes to the end of his life. In chapter 28, the first group that he addresses are the assembled officials and officers that were uh, in leadership under David. And David rises to his feet in verse 2. And he says, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our, of our God, and I made preparations for building. What I love about this is David is sharing his greatest desire and dream. This was his life's passion, to build the temple of the Lord. Think of your own life for a moment. What has been or is your life's passion? What is it that you want to do before your days are up? You know, before you go to your grave, you want to be able to look back and say, this is what I truly desired and I saw it fulfilled. Isn't that what we all have? At some time, we were younger especially, you know, we all had these dreams. For me... My dream, my, I don't know if I call it my passion, but what first comes to my mind, if I had to do my life over, 
Believe it or not, I would have made music much more central and important in my life. If there's anything that I'm always sort of, you know, um, mourning over is my inability to read music and to just play the way I'd like to play or play the way I can hear certain things being played. And I've often, t- not that I mind serving the Lord in the, path, in the way that I, ha- that I am and teaching God's word, but I got to tell you, there are other passions in my life too. And one of which is music and being able to have, you know, really pursued that. But that's not going to happen, right? That's not, I'm not going to be able to read music. Part of it might be due to my dyslexia. It's like, what and how do you read these notes and the stems are up and down? And, you know, it's like, I have no idea how these people do it, especially drum music. That is like so, it seems so intricate and impossible, you know, but a, a heart's desire. But here's the thing. All of us have desires of one kind or another. And all of us have desires that will not be fulfilled. Some of us have had desires in certain careers, and that's not going to happen. Some of us have had desires to attain certain levels of education. You know, we want more and more letters after our names, and we really want that PhD, you know, or MD or DDS or whatever it is, but that's not going to happen. Some of us have desired to have large families. It's not going to happen. We're not going to have large families. Some of us have had to deal with illnesses and things that we wish we didn't have, but we have it. And we're going to struggle with that our entire life. You know, we wish that we didn't. These desires, you know, that do not get fulfilled. You know, what's amazing to me. Look what the next verse says. David here sharing with the leaders And he says, my heart's desire, my passion, my dream was to build the temple of God. And God said to him, you're not going to build the temple of God. You know, there are things that we desire. God's going to say to you, I'm sorry, but you're not getting it. You know, that's not going to be yours. And it may be one of the most difficult things to live with your entire life. No doubt it was difficult for David at times to be deprived and, and listen, he wasn't thinking about being a good musician. I mean, he was a good musician, right? He's not thinking about what would be beneficial to him. He wanted to build the temple of God so that the Lord would be glorified, you know. But God says, no, 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 no. That's not my plan. That's not my purpose for you. That may be a desirable purpose. That may be a good thing. But that's not what I have in store for you. Now, here's the real big, big issue that comes up. What do we do when God says no to good things, you know, in our lives? When God says it's not going to be. How do we deal with the rejection of our desires? Now, God tells David why he's not going to build the temple. He says, you are a man of blood. You are a warrior. And he wanted a man of peace to build the temple. Solomon, by the way, his name comes from the word shalom peace. Solomon was not a warrior. I don't know how tall he was. Maybe he was like, I don't know, five, six-ish, you know, or, or so, <laughs> you know. Maybe five, six, wore glasses. You know. <laughs> didn't, didn't get in too many fights, you know. Was sort of a peacemaker. Shalom, Solomon, you know, was a peacemaker. Um, he was not a warrior. He was a diplomat. He was a negotiator. 
He was an organizer as he organized the construction of the building of the temple. He was a ruler, but he was a man of peace. He didn't have to expand the empire or the nation. David had done all of that for him. But what is so remarkable to me is take a look at how David responds. He says, yet, you know, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Verse 3, right? But God said, you may not build a house for my name. In fact, God had uh, made a promise to David, right? 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. God spoke through Nathan the prophet and said to David, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Your family is going to be the kings of Israel. And your descendant is going to be the king, Yeshua of Nazareth, of course, fulfilling that. But here's the point. The Lord says, yet the Lord God of Israel, or I should say, you may not build a house for my name, for you're a man of blood. So look what David says in verse 4. Does David bemoan the fact that his dream would not be fulfilled? Does David complain that he's not the one to build the temple of God? Look what what he says. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. I love what David does. Rather than to focus on what he could not achieve, he focuses on what God did enable him to achieve. That's a great lesson, because we're all going to have disappointments in life. We're all going to have dreams and desires that are not going to be fulfilled. And we can focus on that over and over again and become bitter, become angry, lose a sense of joy and happiness. Or we could choose to focus on what God has done for us, how God has given us great blessings. So look what David says. He says, okay, I can't build the house of God for God that I wanted to build, but yet he did choose me over all my seven brothers and over all the families of Judah and of all the tribes. He chose this family and this individual. He did choose me. And so David focuses his attention on what God has done for him. Not only that, but look what he goes on to say. And he says, he said to me, it is Solomon who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him. I will establish his kingdom forever. And he says, now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments. And so David's whole focus then is God has chosen me, and so therefore follow him, rejoice in him, and rejoice in the things that God has enabled us, has enabled you to accomplish. Because if we obey his commands, if we follow his ways, he's going to use us in very significant ways. It may appear insignificant to us and to others, but for God, it's significant to him because that's what he's called you to do. 
you know, sometimes we, we might look at uh, our ministry or we may look at other people's ministries. We see some of these churches growing leaps and bounds. And sometimes we say, why, why are they growing like that and others are not? But the point is God is using us or using you where he's using you. And I know a number of missionaries who spent their lives overseas in places, not seeing one individual come to faith, but have been faithful in bringing the good news to a people who right now may be resistant, who knows how God is going to use what they planted, what they nurtured, what they have uh, invested for the future. And so the first thing here is when he addresses those that, that are leaders with him, he tells them, I had a dream to build a temple. God said no. But God did some great things through me and in me. And for that, I rejoice. And to the degree to which we follow him, we will see him continue to do wonderful things in our lives as well as in our assembly as David uh, is writing. The second thing he does is he not only speaks to the assembled leaders under him, but then he speaks to his son. Look at verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. So while he spoke of his own unfulfilled dreams and desires, he now speaks to his son who is inexperienced as a leader. Look at chapter 29. And David the king, verse 1, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Now, David is saying some very important things here. Number one, he's acknowledging Solomon's inexperienced. He needs help. Gather around him. Be supporting him. But further, he tells us, you have to support him because the work that he's going to do is great. Why is it great? It's great because he says it is for God and not for man. David saw the building of the temple as an important, an important event to take place. He saw it as a great responsibility because this is for God. And the Ark of the Covenant ought not to be in a tent. It ought not to be outside in this temporary structure called the tabernacle. It ought to be placed into a solid building. This is for God's glory. And you know, anything that is done for God's glory is a great endeavor. Anything done that is done for his honor and for his glory is important. It is significant. It is great. It may not involve the building of the temple, but it might be investing in someone's temple, in someone's life. You know, we t- talked about sign up for coffee with the rabbi or whatever. You know, the time you spend with somebody where you pray with them, where you talk with them, where you just listen to them, where you just come alongside of them. If it's done for the glory of God and for love of neighbor, that is great. That is important. That is significant as we obey God and follow him. And so Solomon is told, he's not experienced in this. Let's gather around him. Let's support him because the work that needs to be done is important and it is great. And so to Solomon, he says, but if you're going to become experienced, I thought this is kind of cool too. 
If you're going to be experienced, this is what you need to be experienced in. You need to be experienced in your relationship with God. He says in verse 9, And you, Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart. Is that not the thing we want to live with our, leave with our kids? If there's one thing you want to leave with your kids, isn't that what you would want to leave with them? You know, whatever you do with your life, I mean, we, we, we may want the best for our kids, you know? Those of us who, who, who have a Jewish background, right? We want our kids to be doctors and lawyers, you know? Doctors and lawyers and any other option as a doctor or a lawyer, you know, that, that's it. My son's not a doctor or a lawyer. But we think like that. We think of the thing that they're doing, but what do we really want for our kids? We want to know God, you know? We want you to walk with God. We want you to serve God. We want you to have a heart like David for God. That's what David is telling him. You could be a shepherd in the field. He would say to Solomon, I was once. You might be a warrior on the battlefield. I was once. You might have been a musician to the king to give solace to him just to ease his heart. I was once. You may be on the run, living in a cave, running from your enemies, just enduring one obstacle from one obstacle to the next to the next, never seem to get over that hurdle to a plateau. I was once. David went through all of these experiences, but the thing that enabled him to persevere Maybe not always triumph. He had his failings, his weaknesses. But to persevere was he knew God. And he was going to rely upon God. And God would strengthen him time and time and time again. If there's one thing we want to leave with our kids. It's like our, our Shabbat school. When we're with our kids. If there's one thing we want to leave with our kids. You know, they may not learn Hebrew. They may not remember the Jewish holidays. They may not remember all of those kinds of things. As important as they are, they are not as important as knowing God himself. You need to know him. You need to love him. You need to want to follow him. You want to serve him with all your heart. When you get that, everything else will fall into place because it doesn't matter what follows after that. Because when we have God, we have everything, right? But it's not just about having everything. It's simply about having everything in the right priorities and right perspective so what does david say he says my son know the god of your father serve him with a whole heart with a willing mind for the lord searches all hearts he understands uh, every plan and thought if you seek him he will be found but if you forsake him he will cast you off be careful now and make sure god is first in your life and so then he goes on to say look at verse verse uh, 20 Then David said to Solomon, his son, after he tells Solomon, and this is a major section, verses 11 to 19, he tells Solomon, I've accumulated all the gold, the silver, the bronze, everything you need in order to build the temple. So make sure you serve God with your whole heart. Build the temple as God wants it to be built. But then he says, then David said to Solomon, be strong and courageous and do it. (laughs) You know, it's like Nike. Be strong and courageous And just do it in his strength. But you know what's so really cool about this? You know, if you think of... Now, just step to aside for a moment. If you think of the Bible in a broad panoramic scope, there's three major events in the history of Israel. 
three, three major events. The Exodus, where Israel is wielded into a nation. David, where, where the kingdom comes into fruition. And the coming of Messiah. Those are the three major epics, three major moments in Israel's history. Out of Egypt, wielded into a nation. David, as king, after that, the kingdom just declines. That's the height of the kingdom. And then the coming of Messiah. That's what the scriptures are all about. In fact, David, we saw in 2 Samuel 23, said, The heart and soul of the Psalms is Messiah. The, the, uh, sw- the sweet one about whom we sing in Second Chronicles. Right? So that's the heart and soul of it all. Now what's interesting is at the end of the Exodus, right? End of the Exodus, Moses dies. And God speaks to Joshua. And what does he say to Joshua? Be strong and very courageous. Don't let the law of the Lord pass from your, your heart and your mind. So God is telling Joshua, listen, to be successful in the land, make sure you're strong and courageous and your trust is in God. Now here we have the next epic, David. David passes on to his successor, like Moses, although Moses isn't the one speaking, God is, passes on to his successor, Joshua. Now you have David passing on to his successor, Solomon. And what does he tell Solomon? Be strong. Be very courageous. It's the exact same expression that's found three times in Joshua chapter 1. It's like a parallel of movements. And by the way, Yeshua says the same thing to us as well. You know, go into all the world, proclaim the good news. I will be with you even unto the end of the age. He passes the legacy on to the disciples to move into the next epic or era in the major movement of Israel's history. And then it will culminate in the return of Messiah and the coming of his kingdom, which we'll talk about in June. But we're back here in David, right? But it's kind of neat to see that to his son, he tells him the thing you want to focus on is not learning architectural skills, although you're going to build the temple, you know. You want to know God first and foremost with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And you want to be very courageous and you want to be very strong to do all that God would have you to do. This is kind of neat, too. And then the last thing. If you look at chapter 29, he then speaks. First of all, he spoke to the assembled officers, his inner circle, you might say. Then he speaks to his son, Solomon. And then he speaks to all of Israel in chapter, um, chapter 29. And if you look at verse 10, David concludes with this prayer. Therefore, David blessed the Lord because in verses 1 through verse 9, everybody is giving what they can in order to help build the temple. David said, look, I myself, I'm giving 3,000 talents of gold and I'm going to give 7,000 talents of silver out of his own pocket. That's what David says he's giving to the temple. But then when everybody hears this, they say, hey, we can give too. So the other leaders start to give, and look what they give. They give 5,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents of uh, silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And then when David sees this, it says in verse 9, he greatly rejoices. 
And then in verse 10, he begins to pray. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew, the our father refers to God. You know, you might read it as the God of Israel, Jacob, who is our father, right? Like one of the patriarchs. But the Hebrew is very clear. Um, It's Elohei Yisrael. The God of Israel, Avinu, our father. So the God of Israel is the father of, of Israel. That's what the prayer really is. Blessed are you, O Lord, our father, the God of Israel, forever and ever. By the way, that's the strongest expression for eternity in the Hebrew Bible, which is may olam va'ad olam. It's the strongest way you can say forever and ever, you know, Ad olam or olam, but may olam the ad olam from everlasting to unto everlasting is the strongest phrase you can use for eternity in the scripture. And it's only used of one or two other places which denotes the covenant God makes with Israel and the promise of the land. That it is not just for a limited time. But it is the strongest, it is Israel's land, you know, is kind of the thing. But in any case, here, God is spoken of like that. And he says, yours, O Lord. Now he just speaks about the character of God. In other words, to his inner leaders, he wanted them to know sometimes we face disappointments. But reflect on the things God has done for us. To his son, he's saying, you're the king of Israel. But listen, the thing you want to really be a king at is knowing God. And then to the people of Israel, he says, the thing you want to focus your attention on is the character of God. Look what he says about him. This is like a great class in theology proper. Yours, O God, is the greatness and the power and the glory. It sounds like Yeshua, right? The end of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Well, this is where it sounds like it comes from, right? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Is that not a great prayer? Oh, my goodness. Remember, this is the end of David's life, right? He's coming to the end. These are final words. He wants to leave with the people of Israel that they would know God for who he is, and this is what he is like. But then once he talks about God, he says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of our... And our Um, and of your own have we given to you. In other words, he's saying everything we have that we just gave for your temple is what you've given to us. You know, so who are we? We are just, we're nothing in comparison to you. Oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building your house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart, have pleasure in uprightness, in the uprightness of my heart. I freely offer these things. But, oh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. And so what... David is concerned with with regard to Israel as a whole is that their hearts would be directed toward God and that they would love him and that they would depend upon him and they would follow him. 
And when we come to the very end, look at verse 26. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. And here it is, then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. Wonderful epitaph, right? To die with honor. And this phrase, full of days, doesn't mean he lived a very long life. He lived to be about 70. Full of days means that his life was lived with purpose and meaning. One doesn't have to have a long life to have a full life. And so how do you have a full life? You have a full life by what Paul said in Acts 13, that he served God with his whole heart in his generation. And that's what we want, right? We want to serve God with our whole heart in this generation. That means being the best husband or the best wife we can be. It means being the best child that we can be. It means being the best whatever we are in our jobs and in our occupations. It means being the best whatever in regard to our broader family. It means being whatever it is that we do here at our congregation as unto the Lord for one another. That's what it means to serve God fully in our generation. We want to be servants of God, don't we? We want to make him known, and we want to see others come to have eternal life and joy unspeakable. So let's pray. As we pray, the ushers can come, the the, uh, worship team can come as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this day. We thank you for the life of David. What an incredible man of God he was, and I suppose we could say he is. We thank you for his legacy. We thank you, Father, for the example that he has left for us. We thank you for the Psalms that speak of your glory that he wrote, that speak of Messiah that he wrote. We are grateful for all of these things. And we thank you, Father, most of all, for his illustration to us as to what it means to be a person after God's own heart. He was a man of purpose. May we be a man man and woman of purpose as well. He was a man of destiny, even as you had a plan for him. May we, Father, be submissive to your plan for us as well. And he was wholly devoted and dedicated to your service. May we be so devoted and so dedicated as well. Father, we pray your blessing on our congregation. That, Lord, as we go forward, may we as one congregation of individuals coming together at Beth Ariel, L.A., Father, may we be serving you. May we be loving one another. May we be reaching out to our community. May we be seeking to meet one another's needs. May you help us, Lord, to fulfill our purpose which is to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to manifest your presence 
in our world, wherever we might be. Help us to fulfill our destiny, our purpose in our generation, even as David did in his. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.